Welcome to Sex Ed Rewind, reflections on how we learn about sex. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Caro Confort, and I am so excited to announce my next guest this week, Cleo Stiller. Cleo is a Peabody Award and Emmy Award-nominated journalist, television host, and author of Modern Manhood, Conversations About the Complicated World of Being a Good Man Today, a number one new release on Amazon that has been featured in Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, PBS, ABC News, and more. Stiller's work was named by Harvard's Neiman Lab for Journalism as a trend to watch in 2021. Her acclaimed television show, Sex Right Now with Cleo Stiller, takes a no-stigma, no-judgment, and fact-based approach to conversations about health, gender, and pop culture, for which her team received multiple award nominations. She currently serves as an Emmy Awards judge for news and documentary. Cleo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We're so excited to have you. How are you feeling today? Ah, it's a Monday. (laughs) That's all you need to say. We got it. Yeah, it's a Monday. (laughs) Well, hopefully this will make our Mondays slightly brighter. Yes, the highlight of my day. Me too, I'll tell you what. So let's dive right in. We talk a lot about what life was like for you when we were young on this podcast. So could you please share with us when you were in high school, what was your favorite band, favorite fashion trend, and favorite slang word? Oof, okay. Well, not to make myself immediately unrelatable, but <laughs> I went to college when I was 16. Wow, okay. So I was very cool from that point onward, not so much before then. But I would say when I was 16, got to college, got introduced to the Pixies and a tribe called Quest and fashion trend. Ooh, people are going to remember this, actually. There were tank tops with built-in bras that everyone was wearing all the time. Yes, absolutely. Of course, people are going to remember this. Such a game changer. I... I'm not sure why we've done away with that fashion trend, but so tank tops with built-in bras. And what was the third thing you asked? Slang word of choice. The college I went to was in Bo- was close to Boston. It was in Massachusetts. So people were saying wicked. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, wicked. That's like a classic Boston slang word right there. But I do just want to say pre-college, there was a magazine called Delia's. Um, it was a store, Cleo. It was a full store. They had what one in the store? mall. They had one in the mall in my hometown. And it was my number, my number one go-to for many years. <laughs> oh my God. I just feel like, I don't know why someone has not made a documentary or like a mini series with the rise and fall of Delia's because mm-hmm. I don't know where it went, but that was like the place to shop when I was growing up. Also, like, I mean, I'm sure not the original, but to me, like the original graphic tee, like they had a whole oh. wall of t-shirts with like absurd, like emoji style faces yes. and slogans and like things about dogs, like random stuff. Yeah. So big deal. is fan just wanted to get to put that one out there. I appreciate that. And I feel like that also like you 
your other ones were really cool. So I feel like the Delia's really brings you back to like the yeah. average teen vibe. Now I'm relatable. <laughs> yeah. And we're relatable. I love it. Okay. Fantastic. So we know what you were wearing, what you were listening to, what you were saying. So let's hear a little bit. And it sounds like this might be a little bit of a unique conversation because you have this um, cutoff of 16 where you started college. So, you know, we'll figure out how we can piece this together, but can you tell us about the high school that you went to? So where in the world was it located? Sure. It was located in upstate New York. Okay. Actually, I went to two high schools. I did eighth grade and ninth grade at a private school. And then I didn't really fit in at the private school and my parents didn't really have a lot of money. So they pulled me out of the private school and put me back in public school, which I did for 10th grade and half of junior year. And then I went to college. What decade were you in high school? I was in high school in like 2000. That checks out with the Delia's. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Prime Delia's hour right there. <laughs> totally. Y2K. Also. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Interesting. Okay. So Cleo, tell us, did you receive any type of sex education in school? Yes. I now know based on my job that a lot of people don't, which could possibly be even worse, but if not, then like mine must have been the, the classic, like worst case scenario, which was taught by your gym teacher who was like a 70 year old man like you know it was bad Mm -hmm. yeah so do you remember I mean the gym teacher thing is like an unfortunate classic for sure and uh do you remember anything else about it like what exactly was taught how did they talk about it do you remember any details like that any specifics I do remember, interestingly, like I can say like in middle school, they did separate us. People with vaginas were in one room, people with penises were in another. And that's when you learned about like menstruation and people with penises learned about boners. And uh, so that was separate. And I'm sure they called it boys and girls at your school. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Uh, Oh, yeah. I'm I'm sure they still do. Like they would never. Yeah. So then in high school, though, when we got the sex talk, that was actually mixed gendered, which I'm sort of surprised about in reflection, but it was mixed gendered experience. And again, you know, now knowing what I know about what sex ed can be like across the country, it's actually like it was factually accurate, which is a step up from what some other people receive. Sure is. So unfortunately, like that's pretty good, but I definitely remember it was just the mechanics, mm-hmm. just the function of what the act of sex meant and what it led to. So it really was just like a one or two day class over the course of an hour. And when I was in high school, it was just like a year or two before everyone had internet porn. So like Mm -hmm. I didn't have that in high school, but by the time I went to college at 16, that was in full effect. Okay. Got it. So school was not so great. You got a little something, couple hours. Doesn't sound like it was taught by someone super qualified. Taught by someone that like you didn't want to ask any questions <laughs> and he didn't want you to ask any questions. You just sat there and you were like, please let me get through this. It's like, 
If anything, you were very much on the same page with each other about at least that. We're like, no, we're not going to talk. We're just going to make it through this. We're agreeing to not make this last any longer than it has to. Exactly. Okay. So you've already referenced porn. So where outside of school were you getting any type of information about sex? Was there any conversation in your household happening? Yeah. So my family, my parents are both artists and college professors. And so I grew up in a very open household, very liberal, which was very unusual for the area I grew up in. So I knew a lot about sex growing up. And I actually like had worked at Planned Parenthood as like a teen volunteer as a young thing. And so in high school, that's or middle school, like that's kind of when it started because people who, who didn't come from such open families would then ask me questions. And I would be like this little nerd, like, oh, well, you also have to care about pleasure. And, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they were just always open and honest and upfront. And you felt like you could ask questions with them. And you felt like it was just like a great space to learn about sex at home. Yeah. That's great. I mean, and as you said, not only rare for perhaps your area, but rare for most of the country, I would say. Very, very rare. I grew up in like a really open household. And like I said, you know, they're artists, they hung out with other artists. I was, you know, exposed to just like a lot of open stuff as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm curious, did that like how did you feel then in like the school sex ed classroom? Were you just kind of like, oh, I know this already. Or like, this guy's not teaching it right. Like, how did that color how you learned about it in school? It's a really good question because I think by that age, I had also learned the hard way that knowing a lot about sex could, could also backfire, right? Like people are brutal to young women who know a lot about sex. So it wasn't even like I was having it, but, um, I think maybe I just kept my mouth shut. Yeah. Are you comfortable speaking more about that? Yeah, totally. I developed breasts really early, like around like 12 or 13. And that coupled with the fact that I came from such a liberal household in a very conservative area in upstate New York meant that when I was young, people thought I was very sexually active and I wasn't. Mm. And like, to the point where like my parents thought it and I was like, I'm not like, I'm really not. I would have liked to be, but I wasn't. (laughs) Right. So yeah, I, you know, I think all people get tagged as like some certain like label when they're in middle school and high school. And sometimes they're accurate. Sometimes they're not. Overall, I was popular in general, but I was also called a slut. Mm -hmm. And so I think probably by the time we were getting like formal sex ed in high school, I had learned my lesson not to be raising my hand in the middle of class. Right. Just like one of the many ways that we force women into boxes that they didn't choose for themselves. Right. And that are damaging and untrue most of the time. Yeah. I've thought often like how my life could have been different had I not developed breasts so early and we'll just never know. 
Yeah. And that's such a relatable experience for people that develop breast. It's like your childhood kind of gets taken away from you in certain spaces because people assume that because you have these body parts, you're older. And because you have these body parts, you're interested in using them and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And nobody ever asks, right? It's just assumed. Exactly. Exactly. So that sounds, I mean, like a wonderful household to be raised in as a child, you know, through the lens of sex, it sounds great. And again, not something we hear often on this show. (laughs) So I'm curious though, being that you did have all this info at home, what were those conversations like with your friends? Sounds like they kind of knew that you had all the juice. Oh God. It's so, you know, I like, I'm getting nostalgic about this actually. So none of us were actually having sex. But of course, there were other acts, hand jobs and blow jobs and fingering. And I don't think anyone was like receiving oral sex who had a vagina back then. That was like, unfortunately, not a popular thing. Mm -hmm. So we were, there was a lot of conversation. It was like a very exciting thing. It was like something you definitely wanted to be doing. Yeah. I mean, there's always judgment, right? It's like some, some people are allowed to be sexual and it gets like held up in a light. Some people are not. I can't speak for anyone else. This was in my school. If you came from a family of less money and you were sexually active, that was not okay. Mm -hmm. If you had more money, somehow that was okay. So we talked obsessively about it all the time. And I will say I had a lot of experiences that reminded me of the Aziz Ansari story that I, that everyone has heard Mm -hmm. a lot of coerced hookups that at the time you know, it doesn't feel good, but it's so common and ubiquitous that it doesn't seem like it's not something wrong. It just doesn't feel good. The way that we talk about sex acts is that something like you want to collect, it sounds exciting. You want to do it. And then when you actually do it, if it's not done in a context that feels like really warm and safe, then you have a negative feeling about it. And then it gets confusing because you're like, but I was told that I was kind of supposed to like this, but didn't really like it. By the time I turned 16, everyone I knew assumed I had had sex and I hadn't. And I felt like I could not give it away at that point. So when I started college at 16, I think I had sex within like the first two weeks of being on campus. And I was like, finally, (laughs) okay, okay. I've done it now, but okay, great. Spot it's spot on pointing to like the commodification of sex as like yeah. a transaction as something that I give and you take depending on you know the gender of the folks involved. And I also look back and even you know, and it's still super common today, the idea that like sex is only penis and vagina and like all right. those other things like don't count or like their steps to this other thing. Well, I will just say on that note, that makes me think about um, a story that I did for the television show called Sex Right Now with Cleo Stiller for Fusion. Um, we did an episode on virginity and I interviewed a group of high school students and one of the people there was truly remarkable. She was like, my group of friends do not accept the classic definition of virginity. You know, um, she probably didn't use the word reductive, but that's what she meant. (laughs) And she was like, she's like, I've redefined it for myself. Like, I know that I'll have lost my virginity the first time that I orgasm with someone else in the room. And I just like, you know, applause. 
The youth are all right. I just love that because what a good goal for yourself, first of all. I mean, that took me forever to happen, but I just, you know, to really decide that you're not going to live within society's box. Truly amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another like really gendered aspect of it is like the idea of virginity, like no one that's always like really coded for like women and femmes. I think about the media that we've consumed and like the movies and the TV shows. And it's all about like girls and femmes losing their virginity and like what it means for them. And it's like, it's never a conversation around like the first time a guy does it right. Whatever. I will say there are pieces of iconic media about men and um, masculine folks losing their virginity but they're like completely different stories. They're American pie. There's porkies. Like they're done. It's just like, it's not this like deep emotional tale. It's like a, a person desperately trying to lose it at all costs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And thank you for pointing that out. It's spot on. Those stories sure exist, but they're told way differently. And that's totally an important distinction to make. Because obviously when you're a kid, American Pie holds a lot of sway and you yes. like want to be like the people, you know, and, and cool movies like that, that everyone totally. was talking about. And, and anything that dealt explicitly in sex was like cool, you know, with explicit sex scenes or overtones of sex or whatever. So that, you know, really shapes like how young people imagine their first time or if they imagine it or how they imagine it. And like that plays a huge role. Totally. 100%. Okay. Fantastic. So talked a little bit about what was going on at home, a little bit what's going on at school. Love to hear about the conversations among friends. Can you talk about the experience that you had with porn? The way you talk about it sounds like it wasn't there and then it was there. So like, what was that like for you in terms, like through the lens of sex education? Yeah, it is really interesting because I'm just a couple, two years old to have been the first generation where people were like, oh my God, all the kids are learning about sex through internet porn. That was not quite me. Like, I do remember seeing porn magazines. I do remember watching Cinemax 70s porn, but it was in no way which that was supposed to be instructive. Like it was more of a show. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to school and everyone had laptops, and private dorm rooms. Then I remember going into a guy's room once and all, and everyone was just watching porn and he had like a million files. And I was like, oh, I didn't know about this. Okay. But that makes sense. Like, of course, that's what you're doing with the internet. I, so <laughs> that was my first foray into that about like, 10 years later, I was in my late twenties at that point. I think it was like 27 and I went home with someone who was 23. So, you know, just like a five-year age gap, roughly. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, oh, this guy was raised on porn. And it was just a like rough five-year gap, but I was like, that's what everyone's talking about. I could tell it felt different. Like based on how you interacted with him, Just you were like, exactly. oh, I had not ever hooked up with someone who I, f- I was like, it was, almost, I was like, what is going on right now? I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh you, that's what everyone's talking about. You saw this in a movie and now you're trying it on me. I, okay. 
Got it. That I feel like is actually a really useful anecdote because I mean, the proof is in the pudding, right? (laughs) Like you didn't talk about it, but like you could just pick up based on the way he acted thing, you know, whatever, like it was totally, yeah. yeah, I just was like, what the hell is going on? And then I was like, oh my God, this is what everyone's been saying. This is a guy who was raised on porn. Mm -hmm. I hadn't experienced it. Like I said, my exact cohorts, not like that, but this guy for sure. Right, right, right. That's so fascinating. That very specific uh, niche moment in like our cultural history where like there's a before and then there's an after. Totally. And it's, it's apparent. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's very apparent. It is very, very apparent. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of times, like, obviously we can't speak for this guy who knows, but a lot of times porn is the only sex ed that young folks get. So it's like, it's one thing if like they're home and they're watching porn and then they go into school and they're getting comprehensive sex education to understand what they're looking at and maybe be able to identify some problematic tropes or stereotypes and like engage with it with some literacy, but like, that's not really happening. No, no, of course not. Of course not. That would be crazy. No, (laughs) no. Okay. So, so interesting. Um, I'm curious. I feel like we hit all the main channels, but I want to give you an opportunity other than the ones that we've talked about. Did I miss any? Were there other kind of like big channels for you where you felt you learned a lot about sex from? Yeah. Older friends, Mm. older friends. You know, I think I was at camp one year and I befriended a girl. If say I was like 13, she might've been 17 Mm -hmm. and she had a college boyfriend And I actually feel like everything I needed to know about sex, really, I learned from her. Yeah, I feel like it's helpful because particularly with this kind of stuff, sometimes experience is the greatest teacher. And if you can experience it through someone else's experience, it's like a really kind of safe way for you to get like firsthand accounts of how it goes down. Totally. And I'm sure there was like, I mean, it won't be always true. You could have an older friend who either lies or has like a terrible relationship to sex and you learn awful things. But I was lucky in that she, she seemed to have like a very committed, healthy, stable relationship with this guy that she was with. And she was trying everything and it sounded really fun. And I learned a lot, you know? Yeah. Well, we love that for her. We love that for you. Love it for me. We love it. Okay. So I'd love to move into a conversation about intersecting identities and how those kind of play a role. So can you share with us the intersecting identities that you hold that you feel like were relevant to your sex education journey? So I'm a woman. I'm a woman with a comparatively like open interest in sex. I'm half Jewish. Jewish women are known for loving sex and and being into it. It's like a much more kind of like open culture. Well, reformed Jews, at least. I can only speak for the New York Jewish population. I'm white, so I wasn't aware of it at, at the time because that's how white privilege works. But that was certainly, I thought about that actually when you and I were talking about how my breasts develop. Like we know there are many other factors Um, and identities that will clock you to the external world as being older than you are. So my whiteness played a factor in how I learned about sex. I was, I didn't think of myself as bisexual. I was just mostly trending towards heterosexual, but somewhat interested in girls or exploring. And 
like that was permissible because of the way I looked. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. So my next question for you, and this could be in the material that you were exposed to as a young person or everything since then, since I know you do obviously a lot of work in this space, but did you feel like any of those identities were represented in the sex education material that you either consumed in the past or that you're exposed to now? I mean, I'm not far from the mark as a cis hetero white woman. Mm -hmm. However, I will say that I feel like the general projection of like, there's like a man and there's a woman and the man always wants sex and the woman is the gatekeeper. And it is the woman's job to like say no, say no, say no. And if something happens and it goes further than that, then that is the woman's fault. And so that never worked for me because I was interested in sex and I didn't feel like this kind of like promise ring betrothed to my father until my husband, like that did not certainly like did not reflect my upbringing. It didn't reflect me personally. Yeah. I I didn't have this like lily white persona to me. And so I did not really feel like I was reflected in the sex ed that I got, but That being said, now that I've come into contact with so many other people of so many watch experiences, I see how, you know, I'm just separating hairs here. Like as far as it goes, like I was lucky that I, you know, that I felt, I, I felt human in the context of a sex ed conversation. Yeah. It's all relative, right? So like when we're young, we're so like hyper-focused on who we are and how the world sees us. And like, it's interesting to feel like at the time, you know, I really didn't see myself in this and that's valid and that's important, but there's also folks who like really didn't even get to see anyone that looked like them, you know, and perspective matters. 100%. Yeah. So I'd love to move forward and uh, change the lens a little bit more to today, um, to what's going on with you right now. We're not teenagers anymore, obviously, and you have quite a career under your belt in the field. So I'd love to know how you feel like your sex education journey has impacted your relationship to sex today. Yeah. I mean, if I credit my parents for raising me in such an open household, if we call that like my sex ed journey, then I would say it has everything to do with where I am now. When I was younger in my house, you could never ask a bad question. You could never have an intellectual pursuit that was, you know, unacceptable. I mean, I have, it's so interesting, right? Because I'm, I'm curious about everything. And so I'm, I'm just thinking about like a personal conversation I just had where a friend of mine is dating someone new. And I asked her these questions about this new person she's dating. And she was like, oh, I never even thought to ask. And I was like, how could you not think to ask that? And she was like, I don't know. I just don't think like that. Um, so, and I do, and I made a living off of that. And I think that that's, that has a lot to do with, the way I was raised, my edge is that topics that do tend to make other people really uncomfortable don't phase me. That is such a good example of like modeling for your children, like how to engage with potentially uncomfortable material. Like it sounds like in your household, there was no such thing as uncomfortable material. So you learned that you clocked it from your parents and you, you know, turned it into a life for yourself. And like, so often the opposite happens, right? Like we 
our locked boxes about sex or we don't mention it. Or if we do, it's like, you can't date until you're 30 or something like that, you know? Right. So then just like the way that you brought what your parents taught you into your life today, the folks who, who learn that are going to do the same thing. And it's like, it can, it has the opportunity to do so much good and set young people up for such amazing and fruitful careers like yours, but it has so much opportunity to cause harm and go sour when done the wrong way. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, having written the book, modern manhood, um, one, you know, what comes up in the chat sex chapter all the time is like, we use the Aziz Ansari situation as a jumping off point. But the, the reason why that story traveled so quickly was because everyone that read it could relate to that. They might have a different perspective on it, but they could relate to it. And what underlies that is that um, hookups generally are really unsafe. And I, that word means really different things in different contexts, but it's rare to have like a really lovely, consensual, warm hookup. It is unfortunately rare. Usually like the, the normal case scenario is like two people who are, are a little awkward and uncomfortable with each other and they're not gonna say what they want or what they feel and they're gonna play like a silent game on each other. And it's no surprise that so many people walk away from intimate you know, interactions like not, not necessarily feeling assaulted, but like not feeling good for mm-hmm. sure. And that <laughs> is because we are so uncomfortable about sex that we can't even say what we want. And one of the reasons we can't say what we want is because half the time we don't even know what we want. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a landmine out there. Full landmine. And I really think it's a remarkable reality that so many of us are comfortable doing what we want, but not saying what we want. So like you think about that situation, like two people that know they're about to have sex, right? But they're not going to say, they're not going to talk about it. Yeah. Like they can't say it. They're just going to do it instead. And it's like that like <laughs> reality is wild. Yeah. I, I mean, I had a great quote from a woman I interviewed named Lux Alchom, and she is a really prolific reporter and writer on sex. And she was saying, you know, we were talking about this exact thing. And she was saying that if you talk to the average person and say, well, like, what's the problem with like verbal consent? Like, why don't you want to do it? And some people will say, this is awkward. I don't want to say like, yes to this, or you can touch me here or blah, blah. That's just awkward. And you know, what Lux said was like, I don't really understand why we're privileging the people who are uncomfortable talking about what they're going to do. And that should not be the standard. We shouldn't defer to like the least comfortable, least empowered. Yeah. This conversation never goes away. Yeah. I mean, it's spot on, particularly you and I know like exactly why that exists. It's because most people aren't raised in the homes that you were raised in. And most people are not sent the message that all questions about sex are good questions about sex, right? That is the extreme minority, not only in households, but it's also in schools. The sex education that's happening in schools is anywhere from abysmal to mediocre and like some, you know, everywhere in between. And so if you are just continuing to give young folks bad information, sometimes entirely false and accurate information, dangerous, damaging information, they're going to grow up to be 30 year olds who can't ask for what they want in bed. <laughs> it's yep. just the reality. It's so true. 
It's so true. The pipeline is very secure. Yeah. It's like not, it's like not a mystery, yeah, right? Like exactly, we know, exactly. we know how we got here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So next question for you, is there anything that you wish that you could unlearn from your sex education journey? Oh, oh my gosh. Plenty, plenty, plenty. Mostly this isn't, it's not the same thing, but it's very much wrapped in. And I'm sure people will understand this, but like a sex ed journey, particularly for women and femmes, but probably relatable to everyone is that becomes a lot very much entangled with like your body self-love journey, how you feel about your body. And I, you know, I think high school is like a really brutal time for self-esteem around body image. And if I could unlearn one thing, it would just be not feeling beautiful or caring so much if I felt beautiful and having that be so wrapped into my ability to enjoy sex. Yeah, that's a really good one. And that also reaches so far beyond just sex, right? Like if you aren't confident in the way you look or you're ashamed of certain parts of your body. It impacts how you walk into a room, how you walk into a job interview, how you interact at a dinner party. It runs through our entire life. Amen. (laughs) So that I would, I would certainly unlearn that is, that's like deep and far reaching. It's less about unlearning almost and more about like just relearning from a different orientation I really, really wish that everybody, including myself, learned how to be good at sex. Pleasure first, like, you know, it's a tragedy, I think, that I didn't have an orgasm until I was like well into my 20s. Shouldn't have been like that. I wish that for all of us. I wish that for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious. I want to ask you a question that I probably should have asked before this last question, but whatever, we're going to go back. How do you think that your sex ed journey has impacted your creation of modern manhood specifically? Well, the book is very much a product of my reporting style, which is that I really don't believe in stereotypes. We put people in boxes And I know that people are much more complex than that. And so the conversation about how men are showing up to be good men right now, it's very easy to look at someone, uh, certain demographics about them or identity factors and be like, this is probably what this person thinks or says or does on this topic. As a reporter, like that's not, that's not an acceptable way to talk about people. I also while knowing that some men have done really bad things in the past, I'm also very interested in human redemption and I have a lot of empathy. And I think that that has a lot to do with how I was raised broadly. And so the book is very much an attempt to bring women, men, non-binary folks, folks all over the spectrum to one place, to one table to talk about where we are right now as a country, how we got here and where we can go from here. And I think someone with a more specific agenda would report the book differently or wouldn't report it all, right? Would just like write what they thought people should do, which is not my approach at all. Yeah. And uh, to those listening who maybe haven't read the book, you include the voices of tons of different people in their own words and you use that 
to, to explain the narrative and to say like, here's the nuance, here's how, how folks from all walks are experiencing this in real time. And this is what we have to work with. And I think that that is, is what you were talking about in terms of like your reporting style and the attempt that you have made to tell this in a very intentional way. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Thank you. Well written. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you. So last question, this brings us to the end of our interview. Knowing what you know now, what do you wish that your sex education journey could have looked like? Yeah, I mean, I, this, I reported this actually in the book as well. So I spoke, interviewed a woman named Helen Belay, who is a sex educator um, and has worked with people of all ages, but has a specific specialty with young people. And she talks about how sex education, as most people think of it, right, is kind of what I had, like the gym teacher with the banana at high school. And that's too late because we already know about sex by then. So what he's telling us is like so irrelevant um, and without context. Helen argues, and she's obviously not alone. There are many in her fields who think like her that actually like sex education should start at the youngest of ages and of course at the youngest of ages you're not telling them the mechanics of what it is but like from helen's perspective um sex ed when you're six actually looks like teaching about empathy um and that could be when you're teaching kids why they can't steal, like why you can't steal your friend's pencil. And the reason is not because stealing is wrong, because that doesn't really mean anything to a kid at six. The reason is because if you steal your friend's pencil, your friend will be sad and you don't want that. And most kids get that, right? They, most humans at six do not want to make other people feel sad. So when you start teaching kids like that um, at such a young age that they need to care about their friends, that teaches an critical lesson that gets lost by the time we get to high school. Because Helen has this story where when she teaches young men in high school age about consent, she'll say to them, So even if you got verbal consent at the beginning of your hookup and you were making out, now if you kind of want to raise the stakes and you want to put your hands, you know, down their pants, um, you have to ask again. And inevitably, when she says that, one guy will raise his hand and be like, how come I have to ask again? And she's like, because the stakes have changed. So you need to check in again. And And then someone will say, yeah, but if I ask again and she says no, then I have to stop. And she's like, yeah, like, and the devastating, what the subtext of that is that this guy would rather hook up with someone who did not want to hook up with him than know that, you know, that he had to stop. And so if we have tons of young people who then become adults, right, they don't lose this. So we have tons of adults running around who would rather hook up with someone who did not want to hook up with them then know and have to stop. We've already missed the boat there. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the answer is teaching, like rethinking how we think of sex ed. It's certainly not just mechanical. Um, compassion, empathy are, are traits that 
it's sad, but true. They're lacking in our race right now, in our human race. Um, and so we have to start young, teaching the young babies why they have to care about other people's feelings. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of folks don't realize that emotional literacy and emotional competency is integral to comprehensive sex ed for all of the reasons you just described. It's like understanding the implications of your actions, not only for yourself, but for everyone around you and navigating that in a way that works for you and that works for your partners. Right. But that's just like, we think sex ed, bananas, penises, and vaginas, that's it. Like maybe a condom if you're lucky. Right. But we don't talk about the mental and emotional skills that need to be taught to young people because they're not intuitive. They're not intuitive in a culture like ours that is actively teaching you to not see women and femmes as human, to not see certain people as uh, given the right to pleasure, given the right to say no, right? Like in a, in a culture like ours, we have to be teaching that stuff explicitly. It's true. It's spot on. All right. Well, Cleo, thank you so much for joining us. Before we fully close out, I'd love to give you the opportunity to let all of the listeners at home know where they can find you and follow your work and where to look out for modern manhood in the future. So let us know. Great. So if you head over to cleostiller.net, you will get a little pop-up. It'll say, put your email address in and you put your email address in and then a copy of my favorite chapter of modern manhood gets sent to you. And it's a surprise, which one, but mm. it was one I really loved the most. So definitely do that. Then also you're on my email list, which actually I never use, but one day I'm going to tell you some amazing <laughs> things. Cause we're going to sell this show and then you're going to be excited to find out where you can watch it and then find me. I'm on all the social media platforms at Cleo Stiller. Fantastic. And for anyone listening, we will tag all of those on our Instagram posts and they will be on the show notes on the podcast website. So you'll be able to find all of Cleo's stuff there. So Cleo, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure having you and I can't wait to follow along and see what modern man does in the future. Yes. Thank you so much. find the show on Instagram at sex ed rewind or online on my website at caroconfort.me. I drop new episodes to podcast platforms every Monday. The cover art and website are by Kelsey Reifler and the podcast is produced and edited all by me. Bye.